0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with bladder cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about bladder cancer with Dr. Daniel Petrolak. Dr. Petrolak is a professor of medicine and medical oncology and of urology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital.
1: So, bladder cancer, I guess everyone's kind of always afraid about blood in the urine right that is that usually what happens that gets somebody to attention
2: that's that's one of the commonest uh presentations of bladder cancer, blood and urine. Uh, increased numbers of urinary tract infections, uh, difficulty urinating. Those are some of the very, very nonspecific symptoms we can find with this disease.
1: Mm-hmm. And is bladder cancer equally common in men and women?
2: No, actually, it's a male predominant disease. It's about three to one in favor of men. Oh, wow. In unf- favor, huh? Well, in favor,
1: yeah. <laughs> Lucky us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's bad enough we've got prostate glands to worry about.
2: Well, you know, the interesting thing is that the angina receptor is present in the epithelium of uh, of the bladder, so the question question is, does that have any bearing on uh, the incidence? We're really not
1: sure yet. So that's the receptor that responds to testosterone or male hormones? Correct, yes. Gotcha. And and that has something to do with the development of prostate cancer as well, right? Well, it's, it's not really clear
2: what exactly is involved. We, we know it's involved in proliferation, but whether it really truly is involved in in in, in, uh, in in the risk for prostate cancer is not really known.
1: Gotcha. But are you suggesting that perhaps uh, it is involved in the development of, of bladder cancer, or that's also not clear.
2: It's not, it's not clear. I mean, we've, we've actually gone back and looked at some of the SEER databases to see if patients who go on hormone therapy and receive radiation therapy for prostate cancer at, our, at- or at an increased risk for bladder and we really didn't see anything there's some other there are other groups who who are looking at that question in terms of therapy and are using some of the more novel antiandrogens that are being used for prostate cancer uh, to
1: treat bladder cancer Yeah, oh, interesting and women actually have some testosterone as well right or some kind of androgen right
2: we, we all have to we all have testosterone uh, regardless of whether we're male or female uh, in fact uh, there's a conversion of estrogen to testosterone uh, usually it occurs in the peripheral fat so everybody does have Have some testosterone in them.
1: Gotcha. All right. So, um, but from what you were the way you responded to my first question it sounds like blood is not the only way in which uh, patients may come to attention for bladder that, cancer you that's ma- right. you mentioned infections yeah. yes
2: infections uh, any sort of urinary tract abnormality
1: mm-hmm. I, you know, I think many of us uh, particularly guys of a certain age which i'll put myself in that category uh, you know have come to expect that you know the frequency of urination the force of the stream you know decreases over time just in due to aging of the prostate and so on so you know when should people be concerned that their urinary issues are more than age-related or kind of, you know, run of the mill?
2: Well, I think that it, it, blood clearly you have to investigate. Blood's always bad, right? Blood, blood's always bad. Uh, infections, urinary tract infections in men are very, very uncommon, right? Uh, so that's usually an indication of some abnormality in the urinary tract, so that needs to be investigated. Uh, or a crescendo of, of the symptoms. If somebody is having worsening frequency, worsening uh, issues in terms of uh, a burning or other symptoms, that also needs to be investigated as well. So I think, you know, you really have got to listen to your patient's history to see how that's been evolving.
1: Right. But I think it's important for our listeners to understand that not all blood will mean cancer right
2: right it could be bph in a male so that 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 could be related to that
1: could just be the the prostate getting too big exactly uh-huh. and not all infections similarly will be uh, that's correct mean cancer so that's people correct. shouldn't be afraid to go to their doctors no they they
2: should they should uh, investigate it because you know if you let it go it's just not going to get any better
1: right and if it does turn out to be cancer you don't want to you don't want to delay, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what's the general approach to uh, bladder cancer? As I recall, back in the day when I used to know something about this stuff, there was kind of early stage tended to be treated locally. Is that right. still the case?
2: So there there are really two different types of bladder cancer. There is the muscle invasive, which, is the, which can be lethal if, if it's not taken care of. And then there's the non-muscle invasive, which in the most benign scenario, you basically do repeat TURBTs, or scrapings of the bladder, and remove the tumors. And if it becomes more aggressive, you you can instill some forms of immune therapy or chemotherapy into the bladder. So they're really, really two different
1: kinds. Mm -hmm. And and is that done going through the abdomen, or do you put a catheter into the bladder? It
2: goes right through the urethra into the bladder, and a cystoscope is done the same way. Uh, So that's just basically a way to look inside and then uh, potentially grab any tissue that May be that may look abnormal.
1: Gotcha. Um, I was going to make a comment about grabbing, but I think in the interest of a family show, probably not a good idea. Uh, yeah, no, we won't go there. But uh, but that is to say that uh, you know again, men I think are you know uncomfortable talking and thinking about right. having their. Privates Mm -hmm. manipulated, so it sounds very uncomfortable. That's why I was thinking about the grabbing. So, are are people sedated, or is this something you do wide Uh, awake? A general
2: cystoscopy you can do wide awake. Really, and it's not a big deal? Well, you can can have local uh, lidocaine uh, inject into your urethra, and it's fairly painless. Um, it's not comfortable, but but it, it it can be done. The more invasive types, or the TURBTs, that's a little bit different. You need anesthesia for that, uh, so that you and you can do an examination under anesthesia to see how mobile a bladder lesion is, or how fixed it is to the to the pelvis to the bladder wall. So, uh, so there are different degrees
1: of it. Okay. And these are urologic surgeons who do these kind of procedures that's, for the most that's part, That's correct. That right? That's right. Okay. Which you are not. No, I'm not. Okay. I'm not. So uh, so when do you get to see the patient?
2: So I get to see the patient in, when they're muscle invasive. We may be starting to see patients earlier in the course of the disease as well, and we'll, we can go into that a little bit later. Sure. But if a patient has muscle invasive disease, uh, the blood vessels, the lymphatics, those can carry the tumor to distant sites.
1: Okay, and just to be clear, we're talking about the muscle of the bladder. The muscle of the bladder. We're not talking about the muscle of the pelvis no, no, or no, no, no. leg muscles no, or anything no. like that. We're right? talking about the muscle because the, the, the bladder is a muscle, right? So,
2: so there's a the, the the way the urinary tract is set up is we have the inner lining which is the urethelium. that lines the bladder, the urethra, the ureters, as well as the renal pelvis. So okay. we, you know, sometimes we slip and say bladder cancer, but it's actually in the ureter or in the renal pelvis. I see. There, there's some question. In fact, we're becoming more and more aware of the fact that these, even though they may have the same histology, they may, there may be some biological differences in how they respond to treatment and their mutational loads. So, um, um, But uh, it's the entire urinary tract. And in fact, if you think about it, Bladder cancer is much more frequent than tumors of the upper urinary tract. Mm -hmm. And that's because carcinogens will sit in the bladder for a longer period of time. There's longer exposure. And the carcinogens we're talking about are tobacco smoke uh, as well as as chemicals. Mm. So when a patient comes in, they're often flabbergasted to hear about the fact that their bladder cancer uh, was caused by smoking and they said well I thought my, my lung cancer uh, was caused by smoking it's like no the the carcinogens that are you are ingesting by smoking uh, have to be excreted somewhere and they go through the bladder and they can expose the bladder and the urethelium to these chemicals which can cause cancer
1: Wow and so Wow. Uh... Most of the cancers uh, that arise in the bladder come from this inner lining?
2: They they come from this inner lining. So uh-huh. when I see the patient, if they have locally advanced or localized disease, and it invades into the muscle of the bladder, we talk to them about chemotherapy as a what's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which means before they have their surgery or the, or the definitive therapy. And the thought is, is that you can clean up the local tumor, may go away completely. That happens in about a third of patients. Or if there's micrometastatic disease that we can't see on a CT scan, then the chemotherapy will help to take care of that. And it's been demonstrated that patients who have get what's called cisplatin-based chemotherapy, they have a, an improved survival with surgery than those patients who just simply receive the surgery alone.
1: And does surgery mean removing the bladder?
2: Surgery means removing the bladder,
1: yes. Right, which I think people are very worried about.
2: They, they're worried about that. In some cases, a new bladder can be reconstructed from intestine. And in the best case scenario, somebody can urinate normally and not have to have a stoma or a bag uh, that's outside of their body. So that can be done in certain select cases.
1: So it's actually connected to the uh, to the urethra? Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Uh-huh. Well, that, it's, that was- called,
2: it's called a neobladder.
1: Neobladder all right, but that's not always always possible it's right? not
2: always possible yeah that's not always possible and
1: some people will have to wear uh, wear a collection bag
2: some people will some people have will have a uh, internal reservoir that they have to catheterize. It all depends upon their disease and where it's loca- and where it's located and what the ability of the surgeon is to to remove the tumor
1: Gotcha. so if you give uh, one of these uh, chemotherapies before surgery and the tumor goes away, as far as you can tell, do the patients still need to have their bladder removed?
2: That's a really controversial question. Well, that's why I asked. And, and it's, it's it often, will ha- you're absolutely right, often we'll have patients come in, and as I said, one in three chance. Now, if the bladder is removed in these patients, they have an 85% chance of being disease-free at five years. Okay. So, so, it's really it really selects for a very, very good prognostic group. And the question you're asking is, do we need to take their bladders out? The answer is we really don't know. There are some patients who harbor occult metastases within the lymph node. There's some patients who will recur locally within the bladder. In some very, very select studies in patients who are treated with that approach, neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by repeat cystoscopies and resections of tumors. You, about p- half of patients will be able to ret- retain their bladder. So that, that is possible uh, in that
1: situation. I guess the patient, you need to have a patient who's like very, very compliant. Uh, how often right. will they need these cystoscopies? Well,
2: at least initially every three months. Yeah, that's pretty often. Yeah, it's pretty frequent. But, uh, but you know, w- w- there have been some studies that have looked at this question and varying uh, results from institution to institution.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so l- let's take the more, what sounds like it's probably the more more common pathway, which they've gotten chemotherapy and maybe the tumor didn't go all the way, all the way, or it went all the way, away, all the way, but they want this uh, you know, opportunity uh, you know, to be cured with surgery, hopefully. So what, what happens then?
2: So it's, it's interesting when you look at the data from those patients who don't have uh, a complete response to chemotherapy, it's all, in the first studies, it's almost superimposable over surgery without the chemotherapy. So you're, you're selecting for a less resistant clone uh, when, uh, or perhaps an even less aggressive clone with the, with the patients who respond. But right now, if you've had chemotherapy before surgery, There is no standard treatment to give after surgery. You watch these patients every three months to be sure that they're not relapsing, and then you administer the appropriate therapy at that point. Uh, We are looking at clinical trials right now to evaluate some of these new immune checkpoint inhibitors in the post-operative setting. So the thought is, is that by giving immune therapy early, we may have more of an effect with a low residual volume of disease than giving it later on when they have more, uh, more bulky disease and they may have less of a chance to respond.
1: Hmm, interesting. And I'll certainly want to come back to that in a few minutes. Um, but I'm just wondering, again, as a layperson here, or a pseudo-layperson in my case, uh, you know, you've taken the bladder out, where is the tumor going to recur? I don't get it. There's no more bladder.
2: Well, it can recur anywhere. Because remember we talked about before the, the, the channels that are still in the in the muscle, the lymphatics, and the blood vessels, that can carry tumor cells anywhere in the body, to the lymph nodes, to the bone,
1: to the liver. You mean before the bladder came out?
2: Bef- well, it could, be the, it could be there before the bladder came out. Yeah, it could be microscopic. And uh, that's the th- thought by giving the chemotherapy when it's microscopic and small, you potentially can have more of an effect with your treatment. So uh, again, the numbers and the statistics from the studies have shown that that's the best approach to take.
1: Gotcha. Well, um, I think we're going to want to come back to this uh, for sure particularly this interesting immune aspect uh, after the break. But Dan, right now I have to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about bladder
0: cancer with Dr. Daniel Petrolak. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with bladder cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, but thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back
1: to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Dan Petrolak. We've been discussing advances in bladder cancer treatment. Dan, uh, just before the break, uh, you started telling me about some uh, really interesting ideas uh, about um, these immune drugs and how to use them better. You were really involved with developing the first immune drug in bladder cancer, I think. Isn't Te- that right?
2: Tezolizumab. We, we were actually one of the first patients uh, that was treated with the tezolizumab was treated at Yale.
1: Now, what is a tezolizumab? I love that saying all those Z's together. So,
2: cancer cells have a unique ability to basically make themselves invisible to immune surveillance. It's almost like the cloaking device from Star Trek.
1: These are like the immune cells that you get activated when you have the flu kind of thing? Well, these are more specific for cancer
2: cells, T cells. And and so these immune cells are circulating, and there are signals, there's the pd one pdl one axis, which is a way for the immune cell to recognize the tumor cells. And the tumor cells can block that particular pathway. We have developed ways of unmasking the immune system or unmasking the tumors shutting the cloaking device off, and so these tumor cells now can be visible to the immune system. They can be killed by the immune system, and uh, bladder cancer has a long history with immune therapy, so that was one of the reasons why we went after that about five years ago.
1: Okay, so just to clarify, so this is like the cancer cells have Harry Potter's invisibility cloak on as far as the immune system is concerned, and you give this drug and it takes away the invisibility cloak. Exactly. Something like that. Exactly.
2: So, uh, We first started looking at this in patients who were refractory to chemotherapy, and some of these patients had multiple treatments beforehand. And so our first patient had uh, failed three chemotherapies. He had uh, literally a golf ball that was sitting in his neck, a large tumor mass in his neck. Wow. And uh, was... Probably a borderline performance status. He wasn't doing well. He was used to being active and out shoveling the in the snow in his backyard. We had him out shoveling snow within six weeks.
1: Wait. So you gave him this atezolizumab stuff. We gave stuff. him this, the atezolizumab. Takes away the invisibility cloak.
2: Take take away the invisibility cloak, and six weeks later, he was shoveling snow again.
1: But what happened to the thing in his neck?
2: It it disappeared.
1: Disappeared. It went away. Wow. Did, and did all of his tumors go away? Or uh, just he had
2: of them? about 90% of his tumors went away. Wow. And he remained in a very good response for about four years. So in the past, historically, a patient like that basically had six months to live. Yeah, I they know. They did very, very poorly. And so he got four years. And so we went and uh, uh, Paul Eder uh, was part of uh, this this as well. Joseph Kim and our group, we were looking at this in a large phase one trial. And this eventually was was published. And, and we actually uh, published our data, the long-term data with with this drug. And we found that some of these responses were very, very durable.
1: So did you do a study? And oftentimes, I know in a phase one study or first time a drug's being brought to humans, uh, you the doctors might treat many patients with different kinds of cancer just because they're really just looking at the doses and stuff, right? So did you do a study then just with bladder cancer?
2: Well, this was part of a larger phase one trial. I see. and And the results were compelling, mm-hmm. as so compelling that the FDA granted breakthrough status, which means that rather than doing a large randomized trial, you can get FDA approval based upon a small well, or a phase two trial that's not as large as a phase.
1: It certainly needs to treat more than one person with bladder cancer to say that it's really working, right? Right.
2: So we had on this trial, we had about eight, the phase one trial, we had about eighty patients.
1: Eighty bladder cancer patients. Eighty bladder cancer wow. patients.
2: Wow. And this was this was in, in an international study. We, we then went to a much larger phase two trial where the patients were more uniform. I believe that was somewhere around one hundred and fifty patients internationally.
1: All with bla- all with bladder cancer that had recurred.
2: Right. All with bladder cancer that had recurred. The FDA took a look at that data. They were impressed with the response rate, and they granted accelerated approval.
1: Wow. So what percent of those patients actually had a good response?
2: Generally, it's about one in four.
1: Okay, so it's still not perfect.
2: It's still not perfect, but what's really driving the survival with these particular drugs is the durability of the response, because if you respond, you've got a good chance of staying in a good response for a long time.
1: So if you're in that lucky 25 percent, you really can stay in remission.
2: You can stay in remission. Some people come out of it, but a lot of people stay in remission for a long period of time.
1: Wow! And is there any way to select ahead of time which are the patients who are likely to to be in that good group?
2: So there's a lot of conflicting data about that. And when we stain for the uh, marker, the PDL1 marker that we talked about before,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the invisibility, the invisibility marker, the invisibility
2: marker, there there are differences in the technique. And there are some drugs that look like they correlate and some states of disease that look like they correlate with PDL1 expression. Others do not. The problem with looking at this is that PDL1 can predict response to uh, atezolizumab or pembrolizumab or any of those drugs. But it's also prognostic. So if you just look at patients who are treated or are, are bladder cancer patients not treated with PDL1, PDL1 expression portends for a poorer outcome if, so, it's, if it's on the tumor cell. Okay. It portends for a better outcome if it's on, if it's on the, the, the uh, immune cell. Hmm. So, so it depends upon the assay. There's a lot of different subtleties to this. The other thing we're looking at in terms of prediction is something called mutational load. We know that these tumors that are responsive to immune therapy tend to have a lot of mutations.
1: In their DNA? In
2: their DNA. And these mutations translate into abnormal proteins which sit on the cancer cells and make them for a better word, like a steak, juicier to the immune system. Okay. The, and the immune system is, sees that and says, hey, this is something abnormal. Let's get rid of it.
1: That's for your non-vegetarian immune systems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> your, your
2: vegetarian immune systems, perhaps you'll put more tofu in. On it your, looks something. like a tofu. It looks right? like a tofu or something like that. But it, it makes it more visible to the immune system. Hmm. So we've been looking at not only PD-L1 status, but mutational load. And perhaps the way of looking at a predictor for response to immune therapy is a combination of both. Hmm. So there are, are, are ways of trying to refine this particular test.
1: Now, I, I know that atezolizumab is one of several of these, uh, you know, invisibility on maskers, immune drugs. Have others also been tried in bladder yes. cancer? There,
2: there are five that are approved by the FDA. Oh, wow. Five okay. right now. Um, pembrolizumab and atezolizumab uh, are were the first to be approved? Dervalumab, Nivolumab is approved, uh, and Avlumab. So all all five of those are FDA approved for second line therapy.
1: And I'm guessing that the drug companies aren't going to want to put theirs against another one to see which one is better. No, right?
2: there, there's there's never been a head to head comparison of yeah. any of these.
1: So you just pick the one you like, or
2: well, you, you also have to look at the different clinical clinical state. So that, okay. so, that, so those five are all approved for second-line therapy. In other okay. words, a patient who has had prior chemo. There are only two that are approved for frontline therapy and only in a group of patients who are not eligible to receive cisplatinum.
1: Which is the chemotherapy. Which is the
2: chemotherapy. So that's about 30% of the metastatic bladder cancer patients.
1: Well, why couldn't you get give the platinum to everybody?
2: Well, Platin, Cisplatinum, which mm-hmm. is which is a more active drug than carboplatinum,
1: okay.
2: needs good kidney function to right. be administered. And not all bladder cancer patients have good kidney I function. See. Or they may have peripheral neuropathy, which is numbness of the fingers and toes. Mm. They may have hearing loss. All of these are relative contraindications to giving cisplatin.
1: I see, and you can't switch to that other one, that carboplatin.
2: Well, a lot of us feel the carboplatin is not as active a drug not as good cisplatin, mm-hmm. right? So, the one thing that came out over the summertime was there are randomized trials that are going on right now comparing immune therapy to chemotherapy upfront in patients who've never received treatment. Okay, and it seems that those patients who don't have pdl one don't uh, have don't have as good a survival as those patients who are treated with chemotherapy.
1: All okay, right, so, let's think about this. So these are the these are the patients whose cancer cells aren't expressing the PDL correct, one, right? Correct. So from, they're not benefiting from the. They, it
2: looks it looks like they're not benefiting in the upfront setting. Okay. Their survival is not as good as receiving chemotherapy upfront. So the FDA put out a warning this summer, basically saying that. If you have a patient who's not eligible for cisplatinum, they should be tested for pd one status because if they're one negative, they should get chemotherapy up front. If they're one positive, they should get the immune therapy.
1: So presumably the, the research trial has, was stopped.
2: Well, the research trial is still going on, but that particular arm was, was shut for that reason.
1: I see. Gotcha. So the, the hope is, I'm guessing from what you're telling me, that at least in the patients who are the right candidates that the immune therapy will be as good or better right exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. so you're doing this before the surgery then is that no, part this of is this in? is
2: when they're metastatic i see right. so so we're looking at other trials with doing it before surgery or as an adjuvant after surgery those are still in, in in clinical trials
1: gotcha so it sounds like patients have a lot of choices they've got to consider even very early on when their disease presents huh uh huh. And how do, you, how do people walk through that experience? I mean, it's, you, know, you don't know, most people don't know a lot about cancer except they're afraid of it. And probably they, even if they have experience with a relative who had breast cancer or something, it's going to be different than, uh, than bladder cancer. And uh, now you're going to – Dr. Petrolak going to come down and say, well, you know, usually we do this or this. But, you know, we can give you a tezolizumab and blah, blah, blah. And I, I think my head would be swimming.
2: Well, what we try to do is we try to make it uh, as simple as we can. We try to come up with a roadmap. Mm-hmm. If you go up this road, then you're going to go down this pathway. If you go go down this road, you go down this pathway. Mm-hmm. So we try to make it as um, visually um, understandable to a patient by drawing flow sheets or, or showing how it's going to, going to go after
1: that. You really need to take some time with the patient. Absolutely. It's not it's a 15-minute consultation. No, no,
2: Five years ago, it was a 15-minute consultation because we didn't have anything to offer.
1: Gotcha. Now we do. I see. And and if a patient is being treated uh somewhere that doesn't have, and they're not offered these research trials. Um, of course, they, they would may not know about them, but um, I mean, are these trials generally available in, in most places or certain centers? Or well, it's 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 work?
2: branching out. So, uh, so the trials that are with immune therapy initially started out at a few centers, and then they went to larger trials. Some of the other studies that we're doing at Yale are open at Yale and are open at our care centers as well throughout Connecticut. Uh, so we have a lot of our studies open and are accessible to patients either locally or nationally, or internationally for that matter.
1: So I guess that it's fair for any cancer, really, and particularly for patients with bladder cancer, if their doctor presents uh, you know, a plan, it's always reasonable to say, well, are there any clinical trials I should be considering? Absolutely, absolutely. And if the doctor says, "Well, gee, I don't know of any," is that a good answer?
2: That's not a good answer.
1: So that's that's a that's a sign that the patient either needs to do some research or get another opinion, maybe. Uh, huh?
2: ab- absolutely. Right. I think that's 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 very very reasonable.
1: Yeah. Are there resources where patients can get online and and look for these trials themselves? I know that's not so easy.
2: Well, there is a. Uh, bladder cancer organization called BCAN, Bladder Cancer Advisory Network. Uh, so basically, they have a list of clinical trials and some of the centers that have their trials
1: open. I see. So that that's a useful resource. Gotcha. Uh, but how urgent uh, are these initiations of, of treatment I think that you know you got a new diagnosis of cancer you want to get that thing done you know
2: no they' they're, they're pretty urgent I mean in bladder cancer it's it if it fails primary chemotherapy mm-hmm. and then if you fail immune therapy you have really to really move quickly because uh, these patients can have very very aggressive disease and by the time you uh, start thinking about a new trial at that point it may be too late so really you've got to come up with a game plan right at the beginning.
1: But do patients have the time when they're first diagnosed to do a little bit of research to get a second opinion? Yes, they do. Or do they need to hop into the hospital and get that bladder wiped out?
2: No, I, th- I think they have a little time to get another opinion. Right. But when they're in, at, when they're refractory or resistant to their primary treatments,
1: then it's, it's got to it, move.
2: It's, it's got to it's move.
1: Uh-huh. And this, uh, this organization that you mentioned, the, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Group, I imagine they may know of Centers of Excellence. Or, Absolutely, yes. Uh-huh. So... I would assume that most people in the United States, in at least you know where they're not in the far distances of the West, are are probably somewhere close to a place that knows mo- most people are. Right. Most people are, and certainly in Connecticut, uh, you know, you know, given Boston to Baltimore, we've got a lot of very good cancer centers. So, well, wow, this is really interesting. And so it sounds to me, just in the last minute that we've got left, that you th- you're you pretty excited that maybe these immune therapies are making a big difference. Right,
2: but what I'm also excited about, one in four patients respond to immune therapy. We've been working with a targeted smart bomb, something called infortimab which is a drug that delivers chemotherapy directly to the cancer cell. There is a adhesion molecule or sticky molecule that puts the, helps the cancer cells stick to each other, that um, uh, we target. And it, by using this monoclonal antibody, which is a smart bomb, we can deliver a anti-cancer agent directly to the cancer cells. We're seeing a 40% response rate in our preliminary studies in patients who failed immune therapy.
1: So people who have recurrent cancer. Exactly.
2: And we're seeing a 30% response rate in patients with spread to the liver, which is unheard of.
0: Dr. Daniel Petrolak is a professor of medicine and medical oncology and of urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.